Social distancing doesn't mean social isolation. Reach out to your friends and family with free quarantine e-cards from jewishboston.com. Say hi, spread positivity, and share a healing prayer. Choose from six original designs to send love and good wishes during the COVID-19 pandemic. Visit jewishboston.com slash cards and send a card today. Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzevin, and I know I say this all the time, but Dan, Ashley, Kali, and I really do have a very special episode for you today. Why, you ask? Well, this is our 100th episode of the Vibe of the Tribe podcast. Mazel tov to us. Being part of this show has been transformative for me. I was an extremely shy person, and now I'm slightly less shy. I also have a greater understanding of Jewish life in our community. This podcast has allowed me to wrestle with my relationship with Judaism in new and profound ways. The vibe of the tribe has also allowed me to indulge in my favorite hobby of juice-blaining to Dan. Dan, we sure have been through a lot together as hosts. Baruch Hashem, we made it to this episode. Yes, we have. And thanks for explaining juice-blaining to me. Sure. We've all been practicing our breathing, making strange warm-up noises as suggested by our vocal coach. Oh, and we have a vocal coach. I'm also working very hard at not starting every question with, so I'm swearing and screwing up my lines less frequently, and my outtakes are, as a consequence, far less funny. I've also learned a lot from our guests, all of whom inspire and enlighten me. Yes, I totally agree with all of that. I've had opportunities to speak with people I never thought I'd meet, and I've learned so much. You know, one of the reasons I applied for this job at Jewish Boston was because of the podcast. It brought me back to my college radio days. Shout out to WRBB 1049 Radio Back Bay. When I first started at Jewish Boston in January 2017, The Jewish Boston Podcast was hosted by our current editor, Jesse Ulrich, and former colleague, Jen Marmer. It's so exciting to see how far we've come. Our little podcast baby is all grown up. This is actually pretty wild to me. I remember when we were first thinking of doing a podcast way back in 2015, and I was like, okay, sure, we can try it. I didn't really understand the power of podcasts then, and I wasn't listening to anything regularly. But now, podcasts are absolutely my jam. They're part of my daily routine, and I couldn't imagine life without them. Also, I'm one of those weird people who listens at one and a half speed, except for our own podcast, of course, because I want to appreciate all of your beautiful voices at normal speed. It's been really fun for me to see how we've grown in this medium, and I'm super proud of what our team has accomplished. We've come a long way. Thank you, Miriam, Dan, and Ashley, for all your hard work and dedication to this important project. This is a milestone for us, but we recognize it's happening in a very dark time. We recorded this episode after the video of the murder of George Floyd, while handcuffed and subdued by police in Minneapolis, was seen by millions. Protests against police brutality and systemic racism have swept cities across the United States and the world. And this is, of course, against the backdrop of the coronavirus 
which has further revealed the many gaps in our society, whether racial, economic, or otherwise. And it has laid bare the perils of privilege and frankly, the blind spots so many of us, myself included, have when it comes to our own unconscious or overt biases. We are soul searching as well. The Torah says, Lo ta'amod al dam which means, do not stand idly by while your neighbor's blood is shed. Jewish Boston is committed to honoring black lives, but how are we expressing that in our podcast? Who are the voices we're lifting up and which ones are we not hearing enough of? We would love the opportunity to share stories from and elevate the work of Jews of color in greater Boston during this crucial time and going forward. Please email podcast at jewishboston.com if you or someone you know are interested in sharing your story or your expertise on this show. We hope the conversation Miriam and I have with today's guest, comedian Josh Gondelman, helps lift your spirits. Originally from Stoneham, Massachusetts, Josh is a writer and producer for Jesus and Miro on Showtime. He earned four Emmy Awards, two Peabody Awards, and three WGA Awards for one of our absolute favorite shows, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. He has performed stand-up on Conan, Late Night with Seth Meyers, and The Late Late Show with James Corden. He's also a regular panelist on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. As if all of that wasn't enough, Josh has written for TV's Billy on the Street and several publications, including McSweeney's and The New Yorker, and is the author of two books. He also launched his own podcast during quarantine called Make My Day. One of the coolest things about having Josh as a guest is that he has strong feelings about what's going on right now and is turning his despair into action. Make My Day is a game show, but every contestant wins a charitable donation to an organization of their choice. And Josh added extra money so that he could donate to causes that matter to him right now. In his most recent book, Nice Try, Stories of Best Intentions and Mixed Results, which, by the way, is very funny, he speaks of empathy and compassion and also when to take a stand. More than just making us laugh, Josh and the people he writes for also make us think and hear new perspectives. And he's bringing that to today's episode. Josh, welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe. Thank you for having me. So, uh, such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Yeah, so we wanted to start because we, we ask all our guests this now. Are you hanging in there? Are you okay? What's what's life like for you right now during these apocalyptic times? I, I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm trying to make myself a useful person, you know, um, donating, uh, demonstrating solidarity with the protesters, uh, reading, you know, all the, uh, contacting my government reps. And then yesterday morning I had one of those moments of, do you, do you remember that onion article that was like in September, 2001, there was an onion article, uh, not knowing what else to do. Woman bakes American flag cake. I had like that moment in my own life where I just was like, forget it. I'm baking brownies. And, uh, and I did that. Uh, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Seriously. So, I mean, obviously the world really sucks right now. And it is a cliche to ask a comedian, how do you act funny, say funny things during times mm-hmm. like this? So I want to ask the question a little bit differently. As someone who's writing comedy and doing comedy, 
what do you talk about seriously? What do you decide is something that you can joke about or what can you bring kind of a lighthearted approach to and how's it working out in the last couple of days and weeks? Well, this week as the kind of the protests in the the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's murders have gone on, I have not been at my day job writing for TV. We've had the we're we're off in June, so it's it's been I that challenge it is a challenge I have not had to meet professionally. I've been pretty low key. I've been trying to mostly like center and amplify the voices of black people and black writers who are obviously people. But I generally I think like if you say what you mean, it's it gets less thorny, right? Like if the comedy is based on what you what you really think and feel, it's a little less tricky. I feel like it's very funny to to make fun of ineffectual and dangerous at this point New York City mayor Bill de Blasio and just like when I see people on Twitter making fun of him, I'm like that's funny. He should be mocked in the public square. He's doing a truly horrible, and I don't mean to belittle uh, or, or to minimize the the danger to people in the streets that he is causing. But I I think in addition to people saying like, "Wow, your policies and 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 the way you are managing and not managing the NYPD is like putting citizens at risk," but it's also like funny to be like, "Look at this tall, goofy ass bastard. I I hate him." Ah, <laughs> uh, so. In every interview we've read with you, uh, mm-hmm. in addition to being described as funny, you're always described <laughs> as kind. Your book of essays uh, released last fall, which I have here in in my closet. She's holding me. it up. No. People who can't see, she's holding, holding up it the up. book. It's a podcast, but I'm holding it up. Um, I appreciate uh, that. You're welcome. It's called Nice Try, Stories of Best Intentions and Mixed Results. So the very last line, spoiler alert, reads, sometimes the best way to be kind is not to be nice. You're actually talking in that in that bit of the book about social justice and racial inequality. Mm-hmm. And that is so relevant to what we as a country are experiencing right now. So what would be your advice for being kind, not nice, and creating change in the world today? Oh, that's such a, a good question. And I'm not necessarily the expert, but I do think ways I've been trying to manifest that. Also, very, um, very generous of you to assume that interviews all say that I'm funny. <laughs> that is, all the ones that I have read say that you're um, funny. They're like, this sweetheart, I don't even know why we're talking to him. Uh, but I do think, I, I think like, this is a moment in history that really brings out the need to be kind while at some time, at some points, and junctures not being nice, right? Like I think there is that you can demonstrate like solidarity and generosity while still being like really angry and and really righteously angry against these systems of power, right? Like the systemic racism and and violence by law enforcement against black people and against protesters, many of whom are black people. It is like this. These are all really these are things that like I think a kindness and is what makes you want to work against these things. Right. I want people to experience justice and to and for people to suffer less and feel less fear and inequality. But like the way to do that isn't always just like 
hey, uh, Mr. President, sir, please, could we, uh, you know? And, and I, I think that that is, and like the kind of express, and, and it's not necessarily for me always to be the one expressing the the loudest and most vociferous anger. But I think like the express, the way people have been kind of trying to manage expressions of black anger in this really uh, upsetting moment is, is like a way that people are trying to to make other people be nice at the expense of like kindness and and in this case specifically like justice racial justice right yeah there there's so much to dig into in your book you know one of the themes that you you touch on a lot is is awareness there's a lot of self-awareness and i think what you're talking about is self-awareness of privilege and how that how that relates to what's happening right now and what what one can and should say and when one needs to listen. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, that that's a theme that comes through for me when I read it. I want to move to some slightly lighter hearted topics that are in the book. Sure. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, of course. You know, you, you move pretty swiftly in these essays from summer camp to awkward mm-hmm. sex to taking mm-hmm. or not taking ecstasy. No spoilers. The influence of rap in your life and in your upbringing and your marvelous rescue dog, Busy. What's oh, your... Yeah favorite chapter in the book we know what miriam's is but i'm gonna mine is the list of busy's nicknames <laughs> i man it's so hard it's like picking a favorite child when they all are slightly embarrassing to you when you look at them i pick a favorite every <laughs> but, day i've got two of them each day it varies which one is my favorite if, oh it's, that's it's a good easier one. Than you so think. maybe maybe that's how i feel too maybe it's not static maybe it's malleable but i really do i i really I worked really hard on that chapter about summer camp and rap music and anti-Semitic hate crime. It was a a hate crime was really, it was the other part of that. Yeah. I worked really hard on trying to be like honest and, and, and sincere about like my own, uh, like life and, and love of rap music, but also like my place in that culture as kind of a, a beastie boys Jew, as I describe myself. So I mean that, that one, I, I really like the, um, the chapter about about meeting my wife Maris, I I think that it just like was a joy to write, and I love to talk about how much I like and love my wife. I'm like a real I've got a real Chance the Rapper of comedy writers <laughs> vibe. I watched Seth Seth Meyers stand up special last. I think I watched it with my wife over Thanksgiving maybe, and he had so many fun wife jokes and I was like man he's I guess New York City comedy is pre- I mean he's nationally uh available but comedy is preeminent wife guy and I got a little bit jealous I was like that's my lane Myers <laughs> <laughs> so I have a favorite like bit uh, although I do love the busy nicknames I will say um when I was reading through the book one of the favorite bits for me was about how much you love the time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur yeah. where Jews are obligated to apologize to each other there's like a week that we do this and you describe it as your dream and your quote is I used to fulfill this obligation with a mass email to friends and family members expressing contrition and asking for forgiveness one time I accidentally sent it without BCCing the recipients so everyone could see who was on the list. I sent a follow-up email apologizing for that. So I found that hugely funny, but also really important because it's important to know how to acknowledge when we've made mistakes and apologize for them. So from your perspective, how do we take a step back and recognize when we've been wrong in times other than between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? 
<laughs> right. Actually, I'm I'm wrong one week a year. So otherwise, I'm, it's only one week. That's yeah. a pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, I think. I think it's like knowing who to to listen to and who to trust and like what what voices of of criticism are valuable to you and like how to let those in. It's really hard. Um I think it's hard on it's hard in person obviously to take critique or like over the phone or, or from someone you love and care about, but it's and it's also hard on online with strangers, right? Like some I think it's hard to parse out um the good faith critiques from bad faith critiques and and doing learning how to do so and like opening your heart and mind to use kind of like hackneyed language to good faith critique while like filtering out the bad is a really interesting challenge and a really valuable one because you want to grow but you also don't you can't spend uh your whole your your all day every day listen uh, listening to everyone who uh, just says a mean thing about you. So I think it's really like trusting the people, trusting people uh, who you think have your best interest in mind, or at least have have their own perspective that that you value, even if they're mad at you and are like, I I want to tell you you're wrong, even if it's not in your best interest. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it's really like knowing who's whose feedback to trust and and. and working from there i want to go back to rap and i want to go back to the beastie boys and i think we'll we'll get to both of those um i i'm going to say uh having grown up in the boston suburbs like you um i'm older than you so probably nine years i, I had a nine-year head start on on the music and frankly the rap got much better around 1988 um <laughs> you know I, i'm gonna say you know you and i i think agree that the beastie boys were really important i think license to ill was like a critical uh juncture of my of my teenage years. It was like such an important album. Miriam is a huge Tech 9 fan, but I will go to my grave saying that Notorious B.I.G.'s Ready to Die is not just one of the greatest albums, but one of the greatest works of art of the 20th century. So I want to know if you agree or disagree. Yeah, I, I love Ready to Die. I think the emotional breadth of it is so incredible to go from hey in my neighborhood we used to fist fight over problems and now they're now it's riddled with gun violence right and then to go to i love it when you call me big papa and then to close on a song about sometimes i wish my mom would have had an abortion i wish i I was dead i want to kill myself is like this incredible emotional breadth and and depth and nuance and the songs the songs are great like warning like the dj premiere beat for i think it's dj premiere on warning is like one of the greatest beats of all time and he just destroys it like the, i this i i know i sound like such a I like a uh like twerpy corn white cornball but like this is these are my real thoughts that i think them all the time i i get chills thinking about this album and the way that it starts with his birth and it ends with him falling on the ground on the phone with someone saying i'm done i'm gonna kill myself right yeah. now and they're like no don't no don't and he dies and it's just beginning to end is absolutely a masterpiece and the beastie boys were a lot of fun and i loved them and paul's boutique was close to a masterpiece i gotta say love uh, paul's boutique uh i wrote I, yeah. a, I wrote like a really long piece about paul's boutique last year that i sold that never published for some reason for the 30th anniversary and but i really love that album as someone who's just a, a little younger 
it took me a little while to get into it because like because I got into the Beastie, the Beastie Boys as like a tween but that was by then it was like almost like basically the hello nasty era Beastie Boys so like they're one of their later albums but I went to backfill and like so much of their stuff is so accessible right like license to ill is so accessible and 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 big and dumb and loud and it's there's like so much rock me like the it opens with the the led zeppelin drums right so you're like oh this is like shit i've heard excuse me for cursing this is like stuff i heard in the car like driving around with my dad and, and then it eases you into like into all that but paul's boutique is just like way out there and super weird and fast and like uh it man it's so good it's a ride. It's such a ride. I, yeah. I love it. I love it. Miriam, you, you've got so more f- to talk about the Beastie so Boys. It's so funny. Yeah. Speaking of the Beastie Boys, in the book, you talk about your enduring love for them. You know, we can see this right here. How did the Beastie Boys, listening to them, shape your understanding of what Jewishness meant or, or how a Jewish identity could be conveyed? Oh, that's a great question. And I think it definitely, the, the second part of it was is really integral to my love of the Beastie Boys. Because I, like, I grew up, like, when I was little, little, uh, even, I was really into, like, Mel Brooks's films. And I was like, that's my kind of Jew, right? <laughs> like, I, he's, like, sarcastic. And um, he gets to, like, kiss ladies in his movies even though he's like a, you know he's like a silly little man uh and and it's just like that's that's a cool guy and then as I a tween and a teen I feel like the beastie boys were like I was like oh you can be like a, a cool young person or like a self-aware kind of goofy young person that still like exists in like youth culture and and is not like not for my parents you know even you know even though I was born in 85 License to Ill came out in 86 but that's like still more mine than my mom and dad's for sure and uh and so but then okay so so that's it first I think that's like the the in but then the real like the real twist is like how they grew as people in the public eye and I think that um I don't know if you guys have seen the the Beastie Boys like documentary the Spike Jones thing that just came out on uh no I haven't it's yet. pretty cool it's I thought it was going to be more of like a doc I mean I didn't know that much coming in I was just like of course I'll watch it it's the Beastie Boys and it's their right. two-man show that they did at King's Theater um in Brooklyn which uh Seth Herzog my friend got to open for which is the most jealous I am of anyone for anything in my whole life that aside he knows this I've told him uh but that aside I think like the growth over time while in the public eye like you talked about like apologizing and and how to know and like for them to want to grow musically right to be like oh we're not just these doing this goofy fight for your right to party cornball anthem that became this like frat house mantra uh we want to like musically grow but also to be like Oh, we we said things about women that were the the tongue in cheek nature was indistinguishable from like actual sexism, and, and we apologize for that. And like there are causes in the world that we believe in that we actually want to fight for, and and like that kind of growth over time, and like going from that to there to using the an award show platform to speak out against sexual assault at music festivals, like 
that kind of thing. It's like you don't have to get locked into the thing that people like about you. You don't have to get locked into the person you are when you're 19. You can always be growing and like acknowledging that who who you were is on a continuum with who you are and who you're becoming. And I think that kind of growth feels really like Jewish to me. Like it, it feel like I, I mean, I went to um to Brandeis. It's Teshuva. It, You're doing Teshuva. Yeah. I mean, I I went to Brandeis, <laughs> and they're they're one of the big. Uh, I mean, look at my face. Uh, but one of the big principles there, right? The 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 motto is truth uh, uh, truth into its innermost parts. But one of the big pillars of of Brandeis is um lifelong learning, and that it feels the same, right? Of like always committing to like knowing more and being more informed and being better and doing better and doing more. It's like a real value that the Beastie Boys demonstrate so well. And like, obviously, you want people to get it right from the jump and be right all the time and be on the the like, quote unquote, right side of history. But then the next best thing is for people to like, reckon with their past and and be restorative and, and course correct. Right. It was amazing watching their evolution and, and finding out as a child that, oh, my God, they really are Jewish. Like, this was a really big thing. That they're Jewish. They toured with Public Enemy. They, yeah. And yeah. then, like, they play their own instruments. And then, oh, my God. And then they start to advocate for Tibet. Um, yeah. And this was all, like, in a very short period of time that I learned all this. I was like, Beastie Boys, I can't. I can't even. You know? They're so important to me. I, like... Uh, one seeing them in concert i must have been like oh seven talib Kweli opened for them which is pretty fun he's great but like going to see them it's like the opposite of a regret <laughs> like if i had not gone it would be one of my great regrets is not seeing them while adam yak was still alive and when he passed like i was i was in philly and i thought i called my college roommate who was hiking the Appalachian Trail, called or texted my college roommate who was hiking the Appalachian Trail at the time because he's from Philly. And I immediately thought of him as a huge Beastie Boys fan. And like, I just remember like sitting in a, like a cafe in Philly where I was for stand up and talking with my friend because it was, I think it was not the first era where like celebrity deaths were meaningful to people, but it, it was like kind of early in that, period where we, where I think we still are where like those the death of like cultural figure is mourned immediately in real time on the internet it, and and everybody kind of there's like this collective outpouring and I remember that one was the first one where I was like you know the other people I felt sadness and loss but when Adam Yock died I was like this one feels like a personal loss to my life rather than just like a a sadness in the world i remember go, going to the you know i was in the place of work where i used to work at that time and i saw it i think online and i went into every single person's cube or office to tell them whether they were interested or yeah. not but i felt like i was like you guys have to know yeah yeah this is a big moment you have to yeah know. it was really so really i totally affecting. get that yeah shift a little bit to your influences and, and what it might be about our, our reservoirs around here, because it seems like there are a disproportionate number of funny people from greater Boston. We've got 
Rachel Dratch, Sarah Silverman, Conan O'Brien, Amy Poehler, John Hodgman, Steve Carroll, Dennis Leary, Mindy Kaling, BJ Novak, and these are just the people kind of like in my era. What do you think it is about this this place and this area that produces people with excellent sensitive humor that they can carry into their professional lives? I think about this a lot. I think it is the, to me, a, a, something that I value about having grown up in, in the greater Boston area and like done comedy in Boston for a long time before I moved to New York. And, you know, I come, I come back. Uh, but one thing I really value and think about a lot in that, in that arena is that there's this like proximity to um, like all these kind of bastions of thought and higher education, right? It's just so dense with the, the value of like learning and the advancement of knowledge and like the, even in, in like medical knowledge, right? Like the, all the hospitals and, and, but all that juxtaposed immediately on like, none of that feeling to people as important as uh as the Boston Red Sox <laughs> like that is truly that juxtaposition like if you were to ask if you're to ask residents of Cambridge if if you had to pick between saving one building from an act of God or one one structure from an act of God whether it would be the Harvard campus or Fenway Park I bet everyone would pick Fenway Park or like yeah, 92%, 92% of people would pick Fenway Park. Of course. It's like, a no brainer. And then, and then the other 8%, it's not even that the other 8%, they would just be like, God can't destroy the monster. <laughs> like that would be, <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. Hurricane kid. Good luck. Seriously, guy. <laughs> uh, the, the TV show that you're working on now, D. Susan Miro on Showtime. Yeah. Right? It's so much fun. Um, Thank you. It has this, it's this great combination of, of edginess and warmth. I mean, these guys are so great. You know, yeah. you just, just want to hang out with them. Um, and I really, you know, I, I, I love how genuine they are. I love that the conversations that they have are so spontaneous and real that you kind of feel like you're uh, you're sitting across from them and you're all having a beer and the occasional bong hit and you're having a grand old time. And and my my question is because and this comes from a place of jealousy. You're a white Jewish guy from the Boston suburbs. They're black guys from the Bronx. How do you uh, connect with them and write for them when you come from these different backgrounds, yet you still come off with the authenticity that the show has? Oh, well, I th I I mean, number one they're amazing and like my number one priority writing for them is to like be respectful of their perspective and comedic voice so i try to force very little of like me on them that said we do have a lot of like similar cultural touchstones they like they have like an amazing breadth of like cultural references that's just like there, the the stuff that comes up on the show is so funny. Like whether it's Julia, our producer, who whose mic you hear a lot, um, kind of like conversing with the guys while they're on camera, at, like talking to Jesus about like his favorite Golden Girls episodes, to like God, there was some joke. Oh, this this like I think about this so often. 
um, at the end of last season, the, at the end of last year, there was uh, Trump had that note that he had written to himself that said like no obstruction no obstruction it was in this huge handwritten font and marrow goes what font is that written in james patterson novel and it's like (laughs) so that's like such a funny pull and so they just i mean part of what makes them it makes it possible for you to write for them is that they know everything right right so it is like a, a credit to like the brilliance of my bosses and and that I'm like, you know, I I have enough. We have enough common interest that that I'm able to like make suggestions. But it's like so much of what the, and so much of what they do is extemporaneous. Like there's a lot of jokes that they riff that is like, well, I wouldn't and couldn't write that. <laughs> and so I try to like pitch in where it feels like. Um, my overlap with their voices is uh, is helpful and useful. Like we um, we just had this. We just ran this sketch that was that I wrote like a year ago, basically called Intern Fights, and it's an ad for a um, a DVD compilation or v- and also VHS compilation of our interns fighting each other, and it, it just like was in that sweet spot of like I've heard them talk enough about like those kinds of like the kind of illicit videos like I don't know if you you, like pre-early internet even where you would like be in a Newberry Comics or a Spencer's Gift and you would see like a Faces of Death VHS on the bottom shelf like tucked behind something and you'd be like ooh or um or, or like the Girls Gone Wild late night infomercials and then even early internet people like like stuff like bum fights which is horribly exploitive but just like as a cultural touchstone this kind of like exploitation video as comedy fodder and i've heard them talk about it enough and heard them talk enough about like the premise was just like we have all these interns and we don't know like what do our interns do all day how do we manage this team of people like what do we ask them to do and and so the joke is we made them fight each other and are selling the videos <laughs> and so like that was something that felt like right in their wheelhouse like i i thought they i was like they i think they will think this is funny and we like ended up sitting on it because our producers and and the guys were like yeah we want to like put some money behind this we booked stunt actors so it's real fun and I'm glad they like were into it, and it was so it was so dumb, and and that's what I bring to the table. There's like a um a a lyric on the new um Run the Jewels album, uh, uh where LP says, "You want maximum stupid? I'm the guy. <laughs> I am the guy." <laughs> and it's just like to me to infuse to like I think there's a great value to being smart and incisive in comedy and and I I, you know I strive for that where I can but I also think being the most dumb is so fun (laughs) sometimes you need that yeah absolutely how how do you um how do you handle this quarantine and working with them remotely and continuing to produce a show uh when we're like I mean we can do it because all we gotta know Dan what's that (laughs) like (laughs) talk Miriam but I mean like (laughs) That's true. There's you very little TV. production vis- um, value for the visuals here. Yeah, I mean, obviously standards have dropped for what visuals are now, but how do you uh, how do you manage the show and manage the writing and and how you pull it together for them? Yeah, it's been it's been really cool to see how people rose to the occasion. This time is really harrowing and scary, and it was before the kind of um, 
social unrest is such a euphemism. I will say until like police violence came to the forefront of the national consciousness. Um, and, uh, and, and so, and I, I think it's hard to even think about two weeks ago when it, when it was just that everyone was afraid to go outside because of infectious disease. That time and murder feels hornets and whatever so, else. And mur- murder happen. hornets. It feels <laughs> right. Let's not forget that. It feels so long ago, but that it was a, it was a really hard time and people, people were dying and, and, and are dying in huge numbers. So, we're talking about comedy, right? Um, and but I, I just want to say that as as a as a caveat of like not like it rules. It's so creative, but that is the backdrop. But I am I'm so impressed by how everyone across the board on our staff has stepped up to to meet this challenge from our post production department, literally figuring out how to put the show, how to record the show, and put it on television in a new way, and then the writers figuring out new creative ways to um excuse me ways to like create segments and writers coming up with new ways to create segments and that to pitch to the guys and have have them execute on tv to the graphics department doing like a little more lift than usual even to kind of like visually make the show more dynamic and exciting while we're recording on these kind of high-end webcams and then of the the hosts like Jesus and Mero have been unbelievable it's their chemistry over the phone is so uh impressive to me like there are people you know like I have friends that like our chemistry is not that good in person (laughs) and they're just like so good even with like webcam lag and uh it's just like everyone everyone has really stepped up so it's been really challenging especially with the ambient fear and stress of a pandemic uh but it's like really lovely to see the way that everyone responded and how talented everyone is it's really a a special staff have you had any particularly memorable guests during oh yes oh gosh let me think i mean oh yeah the number one for me not and, and i will broaden out from this i promise but we had to talk about the documentary, Mike D. Ad, and Ad, Mike D. and Ad Rock of the Beastie Boys, and Spike Jones, who directed it, and the interview is really long, and there's a longer version online. Like there's, it's probably 27 minutes, and it was chaos. Like Mike D.'s internet kept conking out, and Spike was kind of trying to direct the interview because it was five people, and so he was doing a little. Um, like traffic direction on it and the every just everybody all the five people had like different dynamics with each other that were all really like joyful and wonderful and um it was it was really wild and it was like one of the things like I was watching it just like I can't wait to see this on tv um that was my my number one I think Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union together were really terrific they were really both funny and charming and and candid and uh, I'm trying to think of who else I really liked seeing. I'm sure there's people I'm forgetting, but those were the the two that I remember really enjoy. Oh, yeah, two that I remember really enjoying. Did you like Joe Biden? <sighs> did I like <laughs> Joe Biden? <laughs> Uncomfortable do, question. Do I but like I really Joe Biden? Have to know. I mean, I'll answer sincerely. I I'm I don't I don't love Joe Biden's 
record. He was not my choice for the nominee. I think as the presumptive nominee, he is the clear better choice to be president of the United States, which I know is not the kind of strong inspirational endorsement that uh, would help someone win an election, but that's, that's what I believe. Um, he, we had him on right after, um, right after uh, President Obama endorsed him, and I think we were the first first show to do that. I I thought he was um, watching the interview, like watching him in the interview uncut. I was like, oh, I see the charm that has created the like legend of Joe Biden, if that makes sense, like seeing that kind of up close and watching the kind of little unguarded moments. I like he has I would I would like to hear him answer for his uh, record a little more. I would like to hear him respond more substantively to some of the allegations against him personally. But it was interesting to see up close like I I because I was kind of I think I slightly live in a in a bubble of people who are like look at this dopey old man um why would anyone want him to be president and then to see like that kind of like warmth and charm that is not the the number one quality I look for in an in an executive you know at, at the national level or any level but I understood like what people liked even though I still have the same um the same issues with him as a, as a, a person and candidate so th- so that was kind of illuminating to me all right I'll take that as a lukewarm endorsement for November I don't know <laughs> look I was a Liz Warren ride or die and I was like go away Joe yeah. but yeah. uh I really you know what I'm Hundred percent. I'm just telling everyone right now. Hundred percent voting for him. Yeah, thousand million billion percent. I I understand why people have reservations, but I think like in a in a binary choice to do any good you can. Like I don't think voting like you don't have to get a Joe Biden tattoo. To feel like you can even even if it's marginal good, too it's, late. It's, With the tattoo. No, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, even if your Joe Biden tattoo is marginally good and it says Joe Biden, um, <laughs> e- even um, but even I think even if you if you can vote and like I I think any any way you can you can keep anybody's life more just and safe if if uh, which I think Joe Biden would do at least marginal good compared to Trump like there would be far less like overt and joyful cruelty um yeah and uh and uh, yeah and so I think like that that to me is the is the thing is like it is an opportunity to do uh do some good amidst like the greater four year you know the rest of the time we're trying to do like the more greater on the ground, um, good. Uh, and this is a reminder for our listeners: please vote. <laughs> just a we quick won't tell plea. you how to vote. Just, just but, please. But I vote. mean, you know what we think. But you know, just vote. I really enjoy your new podcast that you made during quarantine. Make oh, my thank day. you. Uh, it's really fun. Um, I love that you know you bring together funny people and you find ways to make the rest of us laugh. 
And I also it's for a good cause. It's um technically a game show, but as you <laughs> technically a game show uh, is everybody <laughs> the right way you to put can't it. Lose this game because what happens is there's a hundred dollar donation made in your name to the charity of your choice if you're a guest. Uh, how did you come up with this idea? And um, I know you did it to to cheer up the rest of us, but I think is it helping you as well? Yeah, I really love making the show. So I'll hand, handle the questions in reverse order. It is it really does make my day. Like I have people on the show that I like and think are fun and cool. And so every week I get to spend an hour just like goofing around with somebody that I think is great. And then another hour, hour and a half, like listening back and making notes. And like I the the episode that's out this week, I have not promoted online at all just because it feels out of step with what people are using social media for and what people want and need from social media right now. But John Gabris was the guest and I editing the show laughed so hard I was humiliated I was humiliated laughing at (laughs) the things he said that I'd already laughed at so hard but he's so funny and then I made myself laugh once and like out loud and was like god I'm such a smug little (laughs) dick (laughs) to be like laughing at at myself like that it is it is like really fun to make the the inspiration for it was a couple years ago I did this live show with the same name called make my day and I did it a couple times and it was really fun and it was much more rooted in the news and it was a panel of comedians um that that each comic uh was competing literally competing it was like a um closer to the format of like an at midnight even where it was Mm -hmm. like games that were structured around the news of the week and um people were kind of coming in you know ready to ready with some jokes ready to improvise and it was really fun and it was really fun to do with a a live crowd and uh the people the people i put it on for were like oh, why, this would make a really great podcast, this live format, if we could get it in a studio. And so we tried to do it. We It, it was a long germinating process of like a year and a half, I think. And finally, um, it we were ready to launch. Like we were ready to record the first episode. And then that, that date got canceled. It was like March... Um, March 10th, which was the week mm-hmm. as I was actually supposed mm-hmm. to come to Boston that week to to do stand up at Laugh Boston. And I can't I had to cancel that weekend because of covid and uh, and, and and we canceled the recording. It like got moved around a little bit. We're like, that's all right. We'll just start next week. And then by the next week, nobody could go to a studio anymore. So um, my producers at, at Radio Point, who are wonderful, we're like, why don't we try to do it just like one on one? So it's less moving parts, fewer moving parts, and and we can just manage it with like the tech we have to record remotely. And I was like, okay, this feels a little different, and and we'll try it. And I recorded one and was like, you know what, this feels really good, and it feels really um, adaptive to the times. Like we don't have to talk as much about the the news specifically. And we can just jump in and, um, and, and like talk about like the feeling of now and, and like acknowledge, like it, it's not, it's not like Jeopardy where you, it could be from any time and you only know when it's from by like the clothes. <laughs> but, um, this is, you know, it's like reactive to the moment, but also it's more about the guest. I, I make the game more specifically tailored to the guest. So there's one, the premises now, there is one guest 
who is the only contestant, so they always win. And it is it the idea is that it is like the most stress-free game show. Like it's the opposite of who wants to be a millionaire, because you know the guest is walking home with the grand prize, and like you're really just there for the ride. And to me, the structure of it is is fun. Um, and I I think, but the structure enables just like it's like twenty percent interview because you learn I think a little bit about the guest because they are really answering with things they think about their life 20 30% game show and then 50% like structured goofing around which I like I think I I sometimes you know unless you really love the hosts of a podcast um just riffing and goofing for like 30 to 60 minutes can sometimes be like um it's not grounded enough for like casual listeners but so I think giving it this game show format means like anyone can jump in at any time and listen to any episode and and enjoy it uh but also it's just like I really want to like some of my favorite shows are just opportunities that the host presents to me to like goof and not do my my stand-up act and just like have a fun time Hmm. well so so we at Jewish Boston, we are huge fans of another show you've been involved with, uh, HBO's Last Week Tonight with John mm-hmm. Oliver. We even have a little shrine in our office uh, to the show. Someday we hope to return to the office and relight our votive candles. Um, so what was some of your, your favorite behind-the-scenes moments from working on that show, from which you've – that show, you got a lot of awards for that, and I, we freaking love that show. Um so thank you for helping make it. And also, yeah, what are some fun uh, stories? Oh man, I it was great. I mean, I I love the um I love the staff there so much. The writers room is just full of like incredibly wonderful, brilliant people who I like they're doing such good work there and are like some of the people that have chosen to leave are doing like really cool stuff elsewhere like when uh will tracy writes for succession and um they like their other uh they're i think is like a, an example of like oh this is the kind of thing people are are moving moving on to do and um so it's it's the people I, I really love and admire and i'm trying to think of like specific moments it's just like getting to be in an office with wonderful brilliant people all the time is such a treat and and that's how I feel about my current job too. It's like to get to be in the um to my you know my desk is in the writers room even though I have kind of a, a managerial position at Jesus and Marrow, um to be a writer there with like Z-Way and Heaven and um, Robert Kornhauser and Claire Friedman and and Jesus and Marrow and like my my boss Mike Pulasic and and Julia Young like the people who have like writer credit on that show are so wonderful and talented um and trying to think of like specific last week tonight moments um i mean really the the getting the dumbest stuff on the air is my favorite (laughs) part the um we we did this i i got to co-write this story with jill twist who wrote the marlon bundo book for the show she's Mm, like mm -hmm. she was one of the original writers there um is incredible she writes children's books. She she writes everything. She's like good at everything. It's ridiculous. Um, but she, Jill and I wrote this long segment on crisis pregnancy centers, which are like fake 
abortion clinics. Like they tell women they're going to give them pregnancy resources and that's kind of scant. And mostly what they do is tell them not to get abortions and, and, and like kind of overplay and exaggerate and invent horrors about what abortion and abortion clinics are. So a lot of these places are, some of them are like brick and mortar and they'll set up across the street from a real clinic and give themselves a really similar name. But some of them are just like a well-outfitted bus that goes from place to place and people come in like those trucks that like you go in and they check your blood pressure, but it's for, they tell you not to get an abortion. And so we had a Massachusetts legend, Rachel Dratch, on the show uh, running a fake, you know, an invented crisis pregnancy center out of a van that we brought into the studio and it was called Van Parenthood. And I was like, and like to have that, to like bring in a van and have it wrapped with a graphic that says Van Parenthood is like immensely gratifying to me to get to just be like, this is the stupidest pun that I could think of. And it's, it's going pun. on television. Is really gratifying because it's, I mean, John is really rigorous and smart and super funny. And when he kind of like proverbially lets his hair down and lets things get a little sillier, it is like, especially when it's in service of something that is, that is like a, an interesting and nuanced and like kind of um, heavy point it, to like be able to counterbalance that was um really fun there's also we did this we did this piece on the the kind of like deep flaws with immigration court and ended with like a fake courtroom show starring john benjamin as um an immigration lawyer for toddlers and he said one of the kids on one of the toddlers on set there was like this her dad had I'm trying to think of what it was. Her dad does this bit with this two-year-old kid who, when asked who her favorite actor is, maybe, she said David Schwimmer. Or, like, when asked what her favorite movie is, she said Hacksaw Ridge. (laughs) Like, that's just a bit that, like, the kid's dad thought would be funny. So they prompted... They prompted John Benjamin to like ask her, like, what's your favorite movie? He's like, What's your favorite movie? And she was like, She's like, Hacksaw Ridge. And he's like, Why what do you like Hacksaw Ridge? And she said, David Schwimmer. And he goes, and he just improvised, like, totally deadpan in this little kid's face. He goes, uh, he's he's not even in that movie. <laughs> and it's so funny. It's like, I remember that so much. It, it didn't even like get that big a laugh in the studio, but like the, that knowing the behind the scenes of that, like I was like, how did that happen? That wasn't like written in the script. How does this baby know what those things are? So wait, did that kid actually know? Was her favorite film actually? No, it was, it was just like her dad. she coached. Her dad, like her dad thought it was funny to be like, when I say okay. this, you say that. And that's just like a bit they Got would it. do like when they would bring the little kid to parties and stuff. Miriam, this is what we do. This is why what? I tell Noah to memorize it's better to sweat in peace than bleed in war. I want well, her to say that at some point at nursery school. I was going to say school. like... Dan's child, Noah, is someone who I could actually see being like, my favorite film is oh, she hasn't Mad seen Max Fury Road. Or, <laughs> she know, has to get through like, the Saw movies first. Right, she has to, right, exactly. So, Josh, uh, we're going to get a little, um, uh, what are we, self, self-referential. self This is our 100th episode. And Congratulations. About it. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Uh, as a podcaster, writer, uh, stand-up, comedian, 
do you have any advice for us for our next 100 episodes? Well, you are way ahead of me in podcasts, but I think my advice is always like, do what you're proud of and put it into the world and, and don't be afraid to like grow and try new ambitious things. That's all you're, you're do you made it to a hundred. You're doing something, right? That's beautiful. That's true. Thank you. Thank you're welcome. You. We did. We did. Oh, now I'm fouling about us. Um, so every episode of your podcast mm -hmm. ends with you and your guest giving a very, uh, uh, a pep talk mm -hmm. to a very specific audience. Um, to wrap up this episode, will you give our listeners a somewhat dewy pep talk? Yeah, of course. So this is a pep talk um, with the uh, with the the bent of well, it kind of harkens back to what I was saying about the the Beastie Boys earlier. I saw there was like the kind of a social justice meme going around this week, which was. Takun alum means Black Lives Matter and you know like healing the world that is like part of yeah. the the Jewish philosophy of healing the world and that like really yeah. uh hit me where I live and so I think the pep talk is as, as heavy as things feel now the way through it is is to keep showing up and keep doing more and, and to like give what you can whenever you can and that like that's the thing that helps and, and and people are working so hard and risking so much to make the world better and you can be a part of that you don't have to like just admire the people doing the work you can find out like what kind of thing applies to your skill set whether it's just like talking to the people in your life about things that are important to you, even if they aren't yet on board or donating money or showing up to a, a protest and um, those kinds of things. And that's not just applicable to this moment, right? So we were talking about voting, but like it's not like wait till November to kind of like snap your fingers and, and make and fix the things that are wrong. It's like, it the 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 heavy part is it is incumbent upon us all to show up in the ways we can every day but the inspiring part to me is we get to show up every day and we don't have to wait to make a difference oh that was beautiful josh thank you so much for joining us today on the vibe of the tribe this has been so much fun oh this was such a treat and so great thank you for having me thank, thank you. you of course You can find Josh Gondelman's podcast, Make My Day, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can watch his show, Deezus and Miro, on Showtime. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in, whether this is the first episode you've listened to or the hundredth. Be sure to follow at Jewish Boston on social media and subscribe to The Vibe of the Tribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or TuneIn. We want to give a very special thanks to Jesse Ulrich, the founder of this podcast, who is now our editor. We literally couldn't do this without him. Thank you, Jesse. And thank you to our composer, Ryan. Happy 100th episode, everyone. Yay! Mazel tov! Mazel tov. <laughs>